text for this morning's sermon is Galatians 2, 17 through 21. Galatians 2, 17 through 21. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Uh, Father, God, I just ask that you would bless your word that as we read these amazing truths of the gospel, that we have been made right in Christ in what He did 2,000 years ago for trusting in Him. Father, help us realize the implications this has for our lives this week and even today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's some things that you and I could do that would be absolutely crazy simply because of where we are at this point in time in history. So there's certain things we could do that would be absolutely crazy simply because we've progressed in knowledge and we live in 2017. To illustrate this, let me read a few unusual ancient medical techniques that you might be afraid if you went down to Avera or Sanford and found them about to do one of these techniques on you. Simply, knowledge throughout history would make these things crazy. The first one, the one you're probably thinking of and you already know about, is bloodletting. For thousands of years, so I got this off the History Channel if you want to go look this up on their website. For thousands of years, medical practitioners clung to the belief that sickness was merely the result of a little bad blood. Bloodletting began, probably began with the ancient Sumerians and Egyptians, but it didn't become a common practice until the time of classical Greece and Rome. Influential physicians like Hippocrates and Galen maintained that the human body was filled with four basic uh, substances, yellow bile, black bile, phlegm, and blood. And these needed to be kept in balance to maintain proper health. With this in mind, patients with a fever or another ailment were often diagnosed with an overabundance of blood. To restore the bodily harmony, the doctor would simply cut open a vein and drain some of their Uh, vital fluids into a receptacle. In some cases, leeches were even used to suck the blood directly from your skin. While it could easily result in accidental death and blood loss, this endured as a common practice, common medical practice well into the 19th century. Medieval doctors prescribed blood draining as a treatment for everything from a sore throat to the plague. So, 
What they thought was the issue is an imbalance, an overabundance of blood, so let's get rid of some of it. We would say, well, we all know that we don't, if we get a sore throat, we don't want them popping a vein open and bleeding us out for a while. Another one is called trepanation. It's humanity's oldest form of surgery. It's also one of the most gruesome. As far back as 7,000 years ago, civilizations around the world engaged in trepanation, the practice of boring holes in skulls as a means of curing illnesses. Researchers can only speculate how or why this grisly form of brain surgery first developed. A common theory holds that it may have been some form of tribal ritual or even a method for releasing evil spirits believed uh, to possess the sickness and, and mental illness. So, bore a hole in the skull and hopefully that spirit might leave. Uh, other researchers thought maybe this was actually uh, to stop um, seizures or, or things of that sort. Uh, another one you might be familiar with is mercury. Mercury is, a notor- is a notorious for its toxic properties, but it was once used as a common elixir in topical medicine. In ancient Persians, are the ancient Persians and Greeks considered it a useful ointment, and second century Chinese uh, prized the liquid mercury, they called it quicksilver, uh, and red mercury sulfide for their supposed ability to increase uh, lifespan and vitality. Some healers even promised that by consuming the noxious brews containing poisonous mercury, uh, sulfur, and arsenic, their patients would gain eternal life and the ability to walk on water. One of the most famous casualties of this diet was the Chinese emperor, Qin Shi Hung, who supposedly died after ingesting mercury pills designed to make him immortal. This next one is quite crazy. The ancient Egyptians had a remarkably well-organized medical system complete with doctors who specialized in healing specific ailments. Nevertheless, the cures they prescribed weren't always up to snuff. Lizard blood, dead mice, mud, and moldy bread were all used as topical ointments and dressings. And women, so you've got to brace yourself on this one, and women were sometimes... Doused with, doused with horse saliva to, to cure an impaired sex drive. How do you think that'd work? <laughs> Let's douse you with some horse saliva. Most disgusting of all, though, Egyptian physicians used human and, and animal excrement as a cure-all remedy for diseases and injuries. And then they had cannibal cures. Suffering from persistent headaches, muscle cramps, or stomach ulcers, once upon a time your local physician may have prescribed an elixir containing human flesh, blood, or bone. So-called corpse medicine was distributed uh, or was a common practice for hundreds of years. The Romans believed that the blood of fallen gladiators could cure epilepsy. And 12th century, um, a word I don't know, were known for keeping a stock of mummy powder as an extract made from ground-up mummies looted from Egypt. Meanwhile, in the 17th century, King Charles II was known for enjoying a draught of king's drops, a restorative brew made from crumbled human skull with alcohol. These cannibalistic medicines were thought to have magical properties. By consuming the remains of a deceased person, the patient also ingested part of their spirit, leading to increased vitality and well-being. 
the type of cure prescribed usually corresponded with the type of ailment. Skull was used for migraines, human fat for muscle aches, but getting a fresh stock could be, gru- be a gruesome process. In some cases, the sickly would even attend executions in hope of getting a cheap cup of blood to make them better. All right, one more. I don't know if this is worth eight minutes, but I'm giving it to you. The wandering womb. Ancient Greek doctors believed that a woman's womb was a separate creature with a mind of its own. According to the writings of Plato and Hippocrates, when a woman was celibate for an extended time, her uterus, described as a living animal, eager to bear children, could dislodge and glide freely about her body, causing suffocation, seizures, and hysteria. This curious diagnosis endured in some form into the time of the Romans and Byzantines, and well after doctors learned that the womb was held in place by ligaments. To prevent their wombs from going on a walkabout, the ancient women were counseled to marry young, uh, to marry young and bear as many children as possible. For a womb that had already been broken free, doctors prescribed therapeutic baths, infusions, and physical massages to try to force it back into its position. Now get this. They might even fumigate the patient's head with sulfur and pitch while simultaneously rubbing pleasant-smelling lotions between her thighs, the logic being that the womb would flee the bad smells and move back into its place towards the good smells. I say all this to convince you that certain things that you might try to do today, you all would say is crazy. And I would say is crazy simply because of the point in time we live in history. And what I want to show you uh, in this sermon today is how we as Christians can so easily go back and live, go in a different point in time in redemptive history. We have redemptive history amnesia. We forget where we're at in God's saving purposes. We know from the Scripture that there was a creation There was a fall, there was redemption, and one day there's going to be restoration and consummation. So the question is, is where do we live and what implications does this have on our lives? Where do we live at this point in time in history? Here's how practical it gets. A married couple struggling in their marriage. Come in for counseling. And they both say it's hopeless. There is no hope. One of the first things I'll do is get out a piece of paper and I'll draw a timeline. Creation, fall, redemption, your marriage, consummation, or restoration. And my question is, is do you mean to tell me that, and this is if it's two Christians in the room, do you mean to tell me that Christ resurrected back here and one day we're not going to have any sin anymore, our relationships are going to be perfect, and God has given us His Word and His Holy Spirit, and we're sitting here today hopeless without hope. It's not true. We need to zoom back and see where we are in history to find out what crazy is. Someone might say, you're crazy if you think there's hope. 
And I would say, no, there's hope because of where we're at. So the charge of the sermon is going to be this. Now you must live by faith in the God who loves you. You must live by faith, not in just God in general, but the God who loves you. That's what I'm going to ask you to do. That's what this text, I think, asks you to do. And if you remember, we're right in the middle of an argument Paul is making. Peter is living his life out of step with the Gospel because Christ has come. He's died on the cross. He's risen from the dead so that a person can be justified, be found not guilty, not by works of the law, not by keeping the law, but by trusting by faith in Christ. And what Peter is doing is he was eating with Gentile believers, non-Jews, and fellowshipping with them like he should until some native Jews showed up. And as he saw them, he felt pressure. And so he quit eating with the Gentiles. He quit eating their food. He separated. And Paul rebukes him to his face and says, Peter, you stand condemned. You're out of step with the Gospel. You're living at a different point in history than, than where you really are. It doesn't make sense what you're doing. And last week, we looked at these amazing verses, verses 15 and 16 of Galatians 2, where Paul argues, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. He's talking to Peter. He's saying we were born Jews, and yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law through faith in Jesus Christ. So, we also believed in Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Jesus, not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And last week we tried to look at, look at the implication of this. You can be found right with God. And remember, where's true happiness? In God's presence in relation to Him. True happiness, the very thing every human being is seeking after, is gained not by being good enough by following the works of the law, but rather a person can be found not guilty and called into God's presence by faith. And then Paul advances this argument forward. Look at verse 17. And this is point one in your notes. <clears throat> point one says, now seek Christ as sinners saved by grace for Christ's glory. The reason why I italicize sinners is because I'm not saying seek Christ as law keepers saved by your own goodness for your own glory. That's not what I wrote there. And look at what, how Paul argues in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Now, he's still talking to Peter. And what he's saying is, is, Peter, what if in our endeavor to be justified with Christ, we too were found to be sinners? Essentially, what he's saying is, Peter and Paul acknowledged they were sinners. That's why they sought to be justified in Jesus. That's why they left Judaism. In their endeavor to be justified in Christ was this reality of recognizing salvation isn't going to come through keeping the law. So, we're found to be just like the Gentiles. Because before the Jews thought, we're the good ones, they're the bad ones, we're getting in because we're keeping the law and they're not. And Paul is saying, no, we sought Christ 
because we were found to be sinners. The reason why you and I ought to seek Christ is because we recognize we're a sinner. And I think for us as Christians, we do this the first time. You come to Christ, you, you, you say, I'm a sinner. I need you. I need forgiveness. And then it's like, okay, now I'm going to live by the law. It's so tempting to say, I was a sinner, now I'm a Christian, now I'm going to be a good person. And we don't seek Christ anymore. We get proud and arrogant. We don't pray as much as we should. We don't read the Bible as much as we should. Why? Because we forget we're still sinners in need of God's grace in our walk. In Romans 10, verses 1-4, through 4, Paul describes his Jewish brothers and sisters. He, and he's saying, they have zeal, boy. They can do religion, but not according to knowledge. Here's how he says it. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. These Jewish friends of mine. For I bear witness they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. Those people that were getting in their veins cut open, they had a zeal to be healthy, but it wasn't a zeal according to knowledge, according to reality. And here's what he says, for being ignorant to the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They didn't realize that the way you become righteous is by getting it as a gift from God. So, they sought to establish their own righteousness and therefore rejected Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying in our text, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, he then says, is Christ then a servant of sin? What are the Jews going to say to them? They're going to say, oh, so you're setting aside the law of God to turn to Christ? You're, you're setting aside living according to the law to follow Christ? Oh, is Christ a servant of sin? Is this the way He leads people? Is this the direction He leads them in? Since we sought Christ... Paul is saying we realized we were found to be sinners like the Gentiles. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Since once I got to know Christ, I found out I was a sinner. No, then Christ would be promoting sin. That can't be true. And he's going to make his argument in verse 18. But under point one there, I want you to seek Christ as sinners saved by grace for Christ's glory. You don't graduate to perfection at any point in time before glorification. Therefore, you wake up in the morning a sinner in need of God's grace, in need of confession, in need of repentance, in need of holding up God's Word before you to recognize still more sin to kill. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit convicts of sin through God's Word and then takes us to Jesus. The devil comes and he convicts of sin. First, he tempts you to sin. Then he says, ha, you're a sinner. God doesn't love you. Live in condemnation and the fear of death. Satan convicts in a way, but he doesn't lead us to Christ. But we need to wake up and seek Christ as sinners who are saved by grace. We need to pray before we act. You see, when we just wake up and begin working, isn't that like doing it according to the law? Do I have the power to function in my day? 
Do I have the wisdom apart from Christ? Am I just going to go get going? God has a lot of work for me to do and I'm not going to seek His help and recognize my weakness? So here's what how Paul responds to this question. Is Christ a servant of sin then? In verse 18, here's what he says. Which, which brings up point two. Now, now do not seek to return to the present evil age for your own glory. So let me do, do, yeah, look at number two in your notes. Now do not seek to return to the present evil age for your own glory. Way back at the beginning of this letter, let me just read these words to you. You're going to hear them different now than you heard them when we first started. In Galatians 1.3, here's what, here's what Paul says. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Jesus came to make a change in redemptive history to deliver us from a present evil age into another age. And that is what is in place here in verse 18. Here's why Christ is not a servant of sin. He says, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Remember? Paul, he was a superstar in Judaism following the law. And in, in the book of Philippians, he says, I count all that dung in comparison of knowing Christ by faith. And Paul says, if I was to go rebuild that system that I tore down because Christ tore it down, I proved myself to be a transgressor. In a sense, he's saying, you those of you who are thinking about turning back to the law for salvation, you're the ones that actually prove to be transgressors. Because God in His will, in Christ, tore down the, this point in salvation history, the law which was there to reveal God's righteous character in our own sin. It was never meant to save. And Christ comes along and tears it down. If Paul rebuilds the Old Testament law which is established now that Christ has come in the new era, in redemptive history, uh, has arrived, then he has violated God's will and it is to be deemed a transgressor. So when Peter suggests by the way he's acting that Gentiles need to eat like Jews, he begins to tear down the very thing God is doing in redemptive history, or He's already done in Christ. Look at what He says in verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law. What does that mean? For through the law, through the law, I died to the law. Paul died to the law since Christ ended the era of the law through His death. Jesus Christ lived under the law perfectly, unlike anyone ever did. Adam didn't, Adam sinned, every man after Adam sinned. Jesus comes, he lives under the law. And when he died, that law ended with him. The way Paul died through the law is because Christ lived under the law and kept the law. He's the only one that could bring it to the end because He satisfied all the demands of the law which you and I cannot satisfy. That's why in Galatians 4, we're going to peek ahead a little bit here, in verse 4, He says this, but when the fullness of time had come, so we're moving through redemptive history. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, 
born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It's unbelievable. At the right time, Jesus came. He died under the law so that you and I no longer live under this cheerful expectation of judgment because the law exposes our sin. As a Jewish Christian, Paul is saying to Peter, the law no longer exercises authority over us, Peter. It was a temporary guardian until Christ came. Look at Galatians 3.24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. It was the guardian until Jesus showed up, then something else happens. A person's justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God, through faith. Through Christ Jesus, we're all sons of God through faith. Now, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, believers were saved by faith as well. But it was a faith looking forward to God as their Redeemer through a Messiah that was to come. And this law, in a sense, was a guardian, kept them in check, and was showing them their sin so that they would look to God and feel hopeless apart from a Savior coming from Him. But now Christ has come. In fact, in Acts 15, which is going to happen here in a couple years after this letter was written to the Galatians, here's Peter's conclusion. Speaking of Gentiles, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did us, and He made no distinction between us and them, the Jews and Gentiles. The question is, is do Gentiles need to follow the law? Having cleansed their hearts by faith, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter gets it. Here in a few, he sees it more clearly in a few years. He's arguing, are we really going to make the Gentiles do what no Jew's done yet, except for Christ? We're going to put that burden on them, tell them they're going to keep the law. And then notice that he's, what he says is that through the law, he died to the law so that I might live to God. How does dying to the law make it so I can live to God? Listen to Romans 7.4. Here's how Paul says it there. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Here's what he's just done in Romans 7. He just talked about how in marriage, when one spouse dies, they're freed up to marry another spouse. That marriage is supposed to continue until death. And, and so he says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died in, in a sense in your marriage to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to one another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit to God. You see that? You died to your old marriage to the law, which just promised condemnation because it revealed your sin. And now that Christ has come through Him, you're now married to God so that you can bear fruit to God. Similar statement to what we have here in Galatians, so that I might live to Him. And then he says this, Still in Romans 7, for while we were living, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law 
We're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. While you were married to the law and to your flesh, every fleshly desire you had, you went and you achieved. You went and you, in a, in a sense, if, if you wanted something that was sexually immoral, you went and got it and the law condemned you. It, it bore fruits of death. But now, verse 6 of Romans 7, but now, so this is a change in history, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So this new life is going to be lived by faith, as we're going to see in a moment, through the power of the Spirit. When you wake up in the morning, how are you going to live your life? Where are you at in redemptive history? Are you going to go earn God's favor today? Are you going to go make Him happy by your good deeds so that He might save you? Or, because you're looking at Christ's salvation, that He's worked for you through His death and resurrection on the cross, uh, resurrection from the grave, by looking at that by faith and through the power of the Holy Spirit is how your life is now going to function. You must consistently remind yourself of where you stand in redemptive history. And, and this, is, this gets down to the most specific little things in our life. We need to live by faith now in the Son of God. You know, sometimes... Uh, I'll watch a movie with my girls. The other day, we, they were watching Finding Dory. And I hadn't seen the movie, but I was pretty sure they were going to find Dory. And when Dory was lost, I kind of pretend like I was really scared, like, <laughs> Dory's, she's not going to, she's not ever going to see her parents again. This is so sad. And my girls have already seen the movie, and they're like, Dad, she finds them. She finds them. Don't cry, Dad. In a sense, but because they knew the timeline of the movie, they knew it was kind of silly to be acting the way I was at that point in time. And we can be the same way. We can forget where we're at. Just as we kind of shake our heads at these crazy medical treatments that they did thousands of years ago or even 200 years ago and say that's crazy we can do the very same thing as we wake up and we don't try to live by faith in the son of god but we try to live by works to please god you can't tell me you don't do this i do i find myself going going into this so easily i let god down again god's so upset with me i got to now I got to get better to earn back. What am I doing? I'm going back in redemptive history. We can live as though Christ never came and rescued us from our enemies. Last point. Third. Uh, now live your life by faith in the Son for Christ's glory. Rather than waking up in the morning, going back in history, redemptive history, and trying to please God for your own glory, now, because of this is where you stand in history, live your life by faith in the Son for Christ's glory. Look at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. You ever heard this verse quoted? Many of you might have this verse memorized. What does it mean? I've been crucified with Christ. What it doesn't mean is this. When you come to know Christ, your personality is destroyed. And you become a different... You, you get a different personality. You become a different person in that sense. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, is I've been crucified with Christ. He's pointing to your life representative in Adam is dead. 
You were born as a son and daughter of Adam. And you inherited his sin. And when Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, he's saying, Adam, the Adam representative for you is killed. A new representative is on the scene. A new Adam has taken place. This Adam succeeded where that Adam failed. So Paul's saying, I've been crucified with Christ. A new era in salvation history has begun in Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 6 says this, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The old way of life is because I got Adam's heart, I love sin. I love it. Therefore, guess what controls me? My sinful desires. Because you do what you desire. There's hopelessness in Adam. But then a different Adam comes. Jesus Christ comes. He doesn't sin like Adam. He lives a perfect life. He dies in your place. He's resurrected. He gives you His Spirit so that your taste buds can begin to change. So that, as a Christian, do you still sin? Yes, you still sin. Do you have to sin? Are you enslaved to it? So that you have to love it and you can't love God anymore? No. You're actually freed out of that slavery. Yes, you willingly walk back into it sometimes. But in Christ, you've been freed. Let me read that again. Romans 6.6 6. We know that the old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that he, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. In a sense, he's saying this. When you were represented in the old Adam, you had a cruel, nasty father. Sin. Satan. And he was not out for your own, own good interest. He was a cruel master. You never experienced love from Him. And Jesus comes and He dies. And Paul's saying, you don't have to go live under that master anymore. He's a jerk. Sin is not a good master. Live under grace with your master being Christ. He loves you. His rules are not meant to keep you from happiness. They're actually meant to lead you into happiness and to protect you. You're no longer enslaved. So this is what Paul is continually telling Christians. Why are you going back to a, this nasty master? That's crazy. That'd be like us going to the doctor saying, you know, give me a dead mouse to rub on my cut. See if that helps. We say that's crazy. But yet, how easy is it for us to submit to this old master under the law, not to live by faith? So he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. A lot of times Paul says, you know, the Spirit lives in you. Well, it's the Spirit of Christ that lives in you. When you trust by faith in Christ, He never leaves you through the Holy Spirit. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is why in Ephesians 4.22, Paul says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, manner of life, and is corrupted through deceitful desires. That's the way you used to live. And be renewed to the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What are you created to do? You're created to be a reflection of God. You're created in God's image. You're made to reflect Him. When Adam sinned and he was 
tempted by Satan, he began to reflect Satan. And Paul's saying, now that Christ has died for you and you've trusted in Him, start functioning the way you were made to function. To be an image bearer for God. Here's how he says it in Colossians 3.9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its, with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed after the image of His Creator. That's what the new self is doing. God saved you so that you'd become more and more like Christ throughout your life. You won't be perfect until you get your, till you see Christ face to face. But this is why, you know, I used to think the reason why we don't sin anymore is because I get my new spiritual body. That, that's why I don't sin anymore. Well, the main problem is a knowledge problem and a faith problem. What 1 John 3 tells me is that I'll be like Him when I see Him as He really is. You want to know what's going to cure my sin issue? Is when I see Him clearly. So how are you going to gain in your fight with sin? You open your Bible and say, God, I need to see You. I need to see Christ by faith. As I see Him by faith, my life begins to produce fruit for God. It's the opposite of the law. This isn't waking up in the morning and say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps and saying, God, I need to see you. And I'll be changed in to your image from one degree of glory to another. And so Paul culminates. He says, the life I now live in the flesh. Now get this. Here's the point of the sermon. The life I now live. Remember, we're on this history timeline. He's trying to make this point to Peter. The life I now live in the flesh, here's how you live. If you don't get anything else, get this. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. It's the most personal language. Don't miss it. Look at it. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who's the Son of God? Who loved me and gave Himself for me. You want to know when your life changes? Is when you wake up in the morning and you believe Jesus died for you. I've said this many times. It's easy to think, Christ died for everyone else in here. You really believe He died for you? Because Paul says, this is how you live your life right now. Till Christ returns at this point in time in history, Peter, we don't go eating certain types of food during God's favor anymore. We live by faith in the Son of God who gave Himself for me. Who died for me. That's how you live your life. By faith in the Son of God. And it looks so good. I'm just telling you. No one's going to say, no one's going to rebuke you for living according to the law, trying to do your devotion, trying to read your Bible, trying to do all these good things from the outside. It looks good. Nobody can tell if you're doing it by faith or to earn God's favor. Isn't that true? And so what we need to always Remember, is I'm a sinner. I'm waking up a sinner. And I have forgiveness in Christ. And He loved me. So I'm going to live in the strength of His power by faith in the Son of God. Here's this Shriner quote again. The new life is not characterized fundamentally by working for God, but by believing in the Son, the true David, and the true Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of David's son, the kingship. He's the fulfillment of Israel. We live by faith in Christ. One of the clearest places we see this, and I just gotta, I wish I could share all these verses I got for you to demonstrate this, but I'm just gonna do this one. John 15. 
John 15. And this might be a familiar passage. Here's what it says. It's this illustration with the vine and the branches. Every branch, 15.2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Listen to this. Already you are clean because of the Word I have spoken to you. This is, this is Jesus saying, you're already clean because of the Word I've spoken to you. He's showing them grace. You're not going to earn your salvation. The temptation here is to say, oh, I better bear fruit. I better bear fruit so He doesn't cut me off. But what He says is, already you are clean because of the Word I've spoken to you. And here's what He says, abide in Me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in Me. And here's the verse, verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in Me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from Me, you can do nothing. Wake up in the morning. Lord, Help me abide in You by faith. Help me see You in Your Word today. Help my heart be attached to the reality of the Gospel. Why? can't do nothing apart from Me, Jesus says. The life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God. Who is this Son? He's the One who died for you and loves you personally. That's how we live the Christian life. And that's why I said the main charge of the sermon is now, because of this point in time in history, you must live by faith in the Son of God who loves you. Father, we so quickly can be like Peter. We so quickly can seek to earn our right standing before You. But Father, we pray that our good works that we do, which You even require of us, would flow out the way they're supposed to flow through our faith and trust in Your grace for us and out of love. We know that none of our works can ever earn a standing before You. And yet, Lord, we know that in Christ, we've been freed up to be able to produce fruit, to be able to bear the image of what You're like. God, I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know You, they would understand this Gospel. Lord, I pray they would understand that if they don't have Christ, they don't trust in Christ by faith, that they will face You in their sin and receive the punishment for sinning against the eternal God, eternal punishment. But Father, I pray that they would have heard the good news this morning that the only way we can be found not guilty before You, the only way our sins can be taken away is a free gift offered to us for us to be receive, to receive it by faith. Lord, I pray that that would be all of our testimonies. In Jesus' name, amen.